welcome to Books in the Wild, the podcast about exploring books. I'm Carrie Schroeder. Today's episode is about the documentary film The Bookmakers. If you haven't already seen the film, I actually recommend watching it before listening to this podcast. I speak with filmmaker James Kennard and bookmaker Mark Sargianis, and although we do some talking about books in general, I think this episode would be more enjoyable as an accompaniment to the film. So take a 57-minute break and watch The Bookmakers now streaming on PBS. I have a link in the show notes, or just search for The Bookmakers on the PBS site. You can also visit thebookmakersfilm.com. Books are one of a number of technologies that hold information and created for very specific purposes that grew into something much larger than what they were first created for. I think the most wonderful thing about books in the 21st century is that with digital technology, they are free from the burden of doing so many tasks that digital information does better. So that we don't have to publish encyclopedias that are almost born out of date. We don't have to publish yellow pages and we don't have to publish all sorts of things that are heavy and weighty and involve lots of trees. So in a way, a book it can be looked at in the 21st century as if it were being totally reborn and reinvented. So we could say, if we were going to have this technology of paper that we hold in our hands, what would we do with it? What are the kinds of things we want to do with it? And I think in that sense, people are just beginning to experiment with what books really are and can be in the space between two hard covers. But it goes on to be whatever it is we can think the text can be and how it can interact with us as we sit by ourselves or in a public space, but always with a book, somehow in that book and nowhere else. From the film's synopsis, the bookmakers profiles an eclectic group of people who have dedicated their lives to answering the question, what should books become in the digital age? From the esoteric world of book artists to the digital libraries of the Internet Archive, the film spins a tale of the enduring vitality of the book. This engaging documentary captures the painstaking but pleasurable process of creating handcrafted books in a diverse range of styles and mediums. The film travels from New York to Germany's Black Forest, culminating at the Codex Book Fair in San Francisco, where the cast of characters congregates to sell their books to collectors from universities and the Library of Congress and to curious buyers from around the world. Along the way, the bookmakers highlights the talent, dedication, and skill of these book artists and reframes the concepts and purpose of the book itself. There's something magical about this kind of strange disjunction between humans who make these material objects with care, with passion, with love, and the way that human beings can impregnate them with these very immaterial aspects of themselves, their thoughts, their ideas, their emotions. How does a physical object actually capture that for us? It's been said that the book is a spiritual object. It's been said that all things tend to end up in a book. There are Jewish 
mystical tradition of the Kabbalah in which the practitioners think of the book as the most venerable object in the universe. And that in the book or in the great work, one can read the mind of God. I mean, that's pretty high aspiration, if you ask me. I'd be, I'd be happy to be able to read the mind of my dog. The Bookmakers was released in 2020 by Inca Films. This documentary profiles several letterpress printers, bookbinders, historians, librarians, and artists who are working to keep the book alive in the 21st century. I've watched the film a few times with fellow book artists and non-book artists, well, virtually at least, and it's a fun, informative film that's enjoyable to all audiences. You might recognize some of the people in the film, one of the featured artists is Julie Chen of Flying Fish Press, who I've mentioned several times on this show, and I'm in it briefly for a minute or two when I was working as her assistant a few years ago. Book artist and founder of the Codex Foundation, Peter Koch, is featured, along with book artist Sam Winston, Veronica Shapers. I won't name everyone, but it is an impressive collection of people showcasing a variety of different areas within the book world. I do think that there is a flowering of the book form right now. The fact that we can now read so much text on a screen has actually freed the book up to do what it does best. As people, we live in a physical world. What I'm trying to do is give the audience an experience of the book. So this is the book that we use to remind us how to put the books together. It's called The Book. <laughs> I want to somehow let the reader into my own thought process. A person who's reading the book isn't just reading the words. They have to go through this whole process of actually doing something and saying, hey, this is, I can hold this in my hands and understand it and read it instead of just like looking at it. Somehow that book has to contain that whole theatrical experience without anybody there to direct it. There's a movement about people wanting to make things. There's this fascination with the physical word. Up next is my conversation with James Kennard and Mark Sargianis. Mark is the proprietor of Prototype Press and is featured heavily in the bookmaker's film, producing his gigantic, impressive edition of Charles Bukowski's novel, Ham on Rye. I knew at some point in my life I'd be making books professionally. I didn't know when. It's crazy that it's happening right now. I got into books before moving out here to California. 
I kind of went on this path of you know becoming an apprentice and learning how to make books from metal type, which is esoteric as it gets. Sometimes they explode when you put the thing in. Books are just really it's kind of the ultimate form of this particular weird craft. They have all the best, you know, materials. It's all about, like, you know, in book printing, you use the best paper and the best type and the best ink and the best binding materials. And it's just kind of, I don't know, it's kind of like a gearhead almost. I don't know, you're into the best stuff. It's kind of toxic, so I'm trying not to breathe in too much. Mark apprenticed at Ariane Press and M&H Type Foundry in San Francisco before starting an independent press with Davy Johnson, who sadly passed away in 2015 before their project was complete. Mark recently moved Prototype Press from West Oakland to Maryland, where he now lives and works. James Kennard is a filmmaker from the Bay Area, and The Bookmakers is his feature directorial debut following a 10-year career in documentary and film production. James is now based in Los Angeles. do just a real brief introduction so of course mark sargianis is the through line of the film a little mark bit. certainly gets the most screen time and I, okay. I spent the longest with mark yeah multiple times so yes i would i would say mark gets to be the star okay and then so do you want to talk about like how this film came to be i know about like, the history of the yeah. book but then you focused more on the book arts well, it originated sort of from a short film. So I got to know Mark just socially. And at the same time, funnily enough, I was becoming aware of the Arion Press, where he was working at the time as an apprentice. In fact, actually, my dad, I think, went to an event there. And it was just a whole world of bookmaking I had no idea about. So Mark invited me to come down to the shop and see the place. And it was, yeah, it was fascinating. And we set out to raise the money to do a short film that's concealed on Vimeo. It's called Arion Press, Creating the 100th, about their 100th book. And it always stuck in my mind that there would be a larger film that could be made, like a whole feature doc. And we went back to some people who funded the, uh, the short film. And, you know, after some discussions, we decided to go ahead and make a film about the book. And as we filmed, my thinking did change a bit on like the shape of what we should focus on. And at one point, there was going to be much more about like publishing and the history of the book and just, you know, classic first time documentary maker fighting off more than I could chew. It got so huge. And we ultimately decided to refocus it down on really the strongest material, which was artist bookmakers and really and, and the craft and the people who are, yeah, who have the freedom to kind of reimagine what books can be now into the 21st century. So it was a long process of getting there. And so did you know that there was such a large book binding community before Arion Press or is it, um, or is it the other way around? I guess I would have assumed it existed out there, but I mm. had no real idea. No, I mean, I've always had an interest in books and the history of books. So I studied history in college and that involved a lot of, well, a lot of time in libraries and with, you know, mm. researching that kind of thing. But no, it was a, it was a discovery. And yeah, Mark was my way in first and Arion. And then I would, should cite that like the moment we got the go ahead, 
we called up Peter Koch because mm. we knew he was just in Berkeley and ended up having, we called him in the morning, ended up having lunch with him that day just to talk about whether this was a good idea for a project. And and he knew where all the bodies were buried and gave us the first short list of like interesting people to start talking to. And Mark, do you want to talk about your relationship with Arion Press? Yeah, I, mean, I, I moved from the East Coast in 2011. I was working at an art center kind of figuring out, I had done printing before, and but I kind of on my own got into artist books and artist book making and I was teaching at a little art center and building their studio and decided I wanted to make my own little fine press book in 2010 and it was a lot of fun and then I ran out of type most of the time I you know constantly was trying to find out how I could you know get more type so then I started you know researching all these typecasters that were existing around the country and eventually one of them, one of the older folks that has been in it for a while, just told me that I needed to make my own type. That's, that was like, you know, if I wanted to own a type, that's probably the best next step. And I was like, like All right, it's that easy to just do. Just I was like, okay. And I was like, how do I do that? He's like, well, you know, you got to apprentice or, you know, go learn from one of these few people. And I got a few names. And so I started looking down these different paths, but Arion Press was one of these places that, you know, that did cast type that I was looking into. And on a vacation years before, I had actually visited there and toured the facility. And I remember specifically in the foundry or in the production room, noticing how young the people were down there. And it kind of like blew my mind. I was like, wait a minute, there's like, there's younger people like in my own age group doing this type of thing. And here I am mountain. Virginia like being a slack ass and like apparently not doing like what I should be doing and so like a year or two later somebody tipped me off they posted an apprenticeship posting and I applied and got the job and so we just got rid of all our crap and kind of moved out to San Francisco to go do the apprenticeship and kind of went down that path. Your own press your personal press is featured in the film as well. So yeah, I, I, had, I had the good luck to film with Mark while he was still an apprentice there. And then, the, oh, okay. so I had some of that footage in the film, the earliest stuff where it feels like a long time ago now, because it was. 2012 but, uh, or 2011 compared to 2015, 16. Yeah, it, yeah, it would have been maybe 2013. But yeah, so I got to see uh, you in that era. And then when you actually set up with Davey in Oakland. I mean, I guess, yeah, that's the next part of the story, if you want to tell it. Yeah, so when, once, uh, I mean, Davey had left Arion while I was there to go start his own press, Sharp Teeth Press. And then further on, I left Arion to join up with him, and we started Prototype Press and started making just nothing. I mean, focusing specifically on, you know, larger fine press projects. That's what we were taking on. And like we had our two typecasters, we had two printing presses and we're in the crazy warehouse in Oakland. Yeah, trying to make it work and, and getting started. The thing I did really like about the film is that the artist studios themselves are almost characters or at least like very <laughs> reflective of the person who's inhabiting yes. that. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was a big mm -hmm. goal at the start. I mean, one of my worries when with any documentary is like, well, what are you actually going to film? And I was just like, okay, this could become kind of a claustrophobic movie where you're endlessly trapped inside some little studio. But then the idea became, well, okay, let's, let's lean into that because the studios do inevitably really reflect the characters of people. I mean, it's their mm -hmm. working environment and these are like artists. So they're already set designed for the most part for you because they've done that. But even when we film, I would usually try and think about, you know, we do pre-interviews and things. And I think about the character of the people. 
we did made a big effort to light them and stage them in such a way that sort of kind of reflective of their their characters not to make it like completely artificial but if you i don't know if you noticed but every time we visit mark's studio in the film it doesn't make any sense it's got completely different lighting because he turned off all the main practical stuff that she had in there and we just be like okay well what's the mood today what's like the the feel do you want to feel colder because it's more of like a tough moment or just warmer because it's like finally near the end of completion of his big book and we did that with everyone Veronica Shaper's very clean, minimalist studio is mm -hmm. like that already, but then we would put some extra lights in and, and focus on all of the little details and, and bits that express them. You've got to make it kind of visual. I, I get bored of documentaries where they just stuck a camera at something. No, it was a nice touch and it was, and it was noticeable. I felt like, you know, Julie's studio, she has all those little toys and everything anyway, oh, yeah. but it just looked very bright and cheerful and I feel like either her color palette that she has going on that in oh, there it's eclectic is, there's a lot yeah it's very <laughs> there's colorful. a lot of it in there yeah I think that was really well emphasized it was a nice touch and then Mark's studio was so I mean it is industrial anyway but it seems I feel like even more so yeah <laughs> we had some fun with the sound design too I mean there's already lots of noise but we tried to minimize it when recording on the day but you know to kind of build it out hopefully it's not you know seem artificial but just gets the gets the mood across kind of thing mm -hmm. i mean peter koch it actually was you know he's, he's got kind of a dark sense of humor it was actually stormy on the day we filmed there we were like okay let's turn off some lights rather than having too many and emphasize the the mood it was fun we had, we had really fun days and luckily everyone was really patient with us because um you know artists get it they know that we're trying to do something artistic as well you did travel to you know veronica's studio all the way in mm -hmm. Um, where is she in Germany? Forget the or name of the actual city where Veronica is, but it's basically in the Black Forest, um, oh, okay. like south of Frankfurt. Oh, okay, okay. How was that traveling that far for the studio? And is there anybody, is there anyone that you wanted to include or a, an area that you wanted to include that didn't? Yeah, yeah. It, well, it's fun to travel. I mean, the previous few documentaries I've worked on were all in Europe and my family's British. And so going to Europe is like a pretty regular thing in my life. I mean, in fact, actually the way it worked was every time we had to scout anything, just I'd all of my vacations with my partner, Andrea, we just turned into also being scouting trips, which actually was really fun because it meant that like, you know, yeah, we're just hanging out, having a good time in the Black Forest, going to beer gardens. But then there's also the occasion to visit a really interesting artist in Veronica, uh, who Andrea loves, her favorite. Yeah, that was just the usual thing of going and scouting and meeting people. And um, there are definitely people I met at different times who I just decided like, well, they're too similar to someone else and didn't end up in the film. And uh, I felt bad because it's such a close-knit community in the book arts world. That I'm like, oh, you know, I didn't want people to feel annoyed they didn't get picked. I remember at one point I was going to do Didier Moutel in France. Probably the biggest thing which I wish I got to do was to go to Asia. But mm. that the way the budgets were, moved around and things that didn't make as much sense and it was going to be it was just going to be a little more complicated because Japan would have been really cool to go to they've got they're doing awesome stuff there and China now that was kind of the the focus of the codex which I ended up filming at was mm -hmm. book arts in China that was the theme I can't have regrets because I like the film as it turned out mm -hmm. but people always ask like are you going to do more and I'm like well I should probably move on to some something else which is my career wise but there's loads more you could film I mean, Mark, I'm sure you know people who think you're doing rad stuff who didn't end up in there, but that's how it well, goes. It's funny. 
it's funny, I got to piggyback on a, a work trip my wife made where she went to China and we got to go to Japan for a little while and we did get to visit, I don't know, what I think is probably the, the hub in Tokyo of a number of fine press printers and a very famous like a uh, museum of printing that's in that's in Tokyo and I actually did get to do a little tour and stay with some of those people that were there, which, oh, wow. yeah, I mean, visually just very, very different. Not much, not in the fine press world per se, but in this resurgent new enthusiasm for letterpress. So that was, that was pretty cool, but you know, can't do everything. <laughs> I would have liked to go to that museum. I went to Japan the first time this year, but it was right before COVID really started happening and they'd already closed the museums. So it was just like, <laughs> places like that where, yeah, not, I have to go back someday. Yes, it is funny with the book community being, because it is so small and everybody has these very particular niche groups that they're involved in. I do like in the film, Heather, that you do touch upon all these different type of makers. You have the letterpress printers and the fine press and then the book artists and the illustrator. It was a good overview. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I guess I'm glad that worked out that way. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot of stuff cut, especially in the publishing side, which was fascinating and writers and all that kind of thing. But it just started to be a whole different movie. Like, we're just mm-hmm. like, wait, where are we now? Someday what? that those 30 minutes that are edited, we'll see the light of day. But I think one problem with some of the publishing stuff is I got a little um, thinking that she has a lot of problems in the publishing industry and let's talk <laughs> about them. <laughs> and I think uh, our funders are actually involved in publishing. And I think mm. that maybe wasn't getting such a good response. And it truly was just a completely different world to examine. I'd love to do like a sequel film about publishing. There's mm-hmm. plenty there and actually make use of some of that stuff because you got a lot of big editors and you will, there's a remainder of it, the like brief appearance of Daniel Handler, Katie Lemony Snicket and Dave Eggers. Those are remainders from almost that version of the film, but it's fun to get them in at the start. I actually just rewatched the film the other night with some friends. We all set up our little laptops and long distance watched it together. These two friends are not bookmakers. And I wanted to get their perspective. And it was really good feedback, I think. I mean, it definitely came across, I think that they were surprised with how many different groups there are, different niches there are, because, and I don't know if you get this sometimes, Mark, but sometimes you get like a, hey, do you want to do this job? And it's something like completely outside your realm. Do you want to conserve this old Bible? I'm like, no, mm-hmm. nope. <laughs> like, I'm going to print my family's oral history. It's like, I, I don't have <laughs> decades in my life to do work like that, yeah. Yeah. And so I think this film did help like, oh, there are people that do that. Like there's other people that, you know, that have specific jobs that do this type of thing. Um, I'm surprised actually no one had done a anything really on it i mean there have been like some pbs like short things like one, they did a thing with julie chen you know mm-hmm. at one point arion press had been featured and a couple of things yeah but like still like there hadn't been anything tied it all together and it mm-hmm. is a funny mix of people i mean there's it's often hard to describe i just say book artists but that that is also yeah like fine press books there's a few different labels but Everyone seems to coexist under the same umbrella pretty well, as long as you're, you know, making something special and artistically interesting or interesting in terms of like a, the craft of it. Everyone mm-hmm. kind of knows they belong at Codex, even though it's like quite a variety of stuff that goes up there. I think they're all, I mean, we're all exploring, I think, the book as a book. And I think that is the one thing yeah. that ties us all together, whether they're people are, you know, bookbinders or printers or in more of the, the fine press world or the artists that are exploring it in a more conceptual way as well. And, and you know, in, in varying degrees of, of combinations of that too. This was a question that makes me cringe and maybe I think is an inside <laughs> joke with a lot of people, but talking yeah. about keeping lo- lost art alive, right? But then I was really thinking about it and yeah. I don't think I have a good non-snarky response for that. 
And so response like what like they don't call it a lost art (laughs) yeah yeah well we're all here like who who lost it you know these stupid things no i mean yeah i I try to remember who said it but like the real way to acknowledge it is just it's not lost it's just for certain purposes obsolete but that's the whole point is what they were saying obsolete technologies just become art you know they're not necessary just to be like functional or for some kind of demands of some industry it's, well, what do you want to create with it? I mean, God, you could say, uh, I mean, I, I like to paint digitally. I also do illustration. And it's not like oil paintings a lost art. It's just, you know, I do digital because it's practical for me when I do concepts and things. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like, it makes you appreciate, like, you know, the older ways of painting. And it's true for like, really anything. As years go on, my explanation, which I think connects to that idea of lost art thing is, I mean, a large part of everything that's here, I mean, half the shop is dedicated specifically to typecasting, you know, and like, there's this one very small loose-knit organization that meets once every two years of typecasting, hobbyist typecasters that meets around. And, you know, the first time you show up to one of those things, you realize that lost art seems is an adequate term considering the, the age of most of the people that are there and the numbers that are just extremely small, like at least in the you know, printers, you know, and there's there's tons of printers everywhere, at least with like letterpress printers. And But once I had to try and learn how to do the typecasting side and keep up with it and, you know, maintain them and acquire them, the world gets extremely small, like literally in the dozens, like in like it, it gets very close by. And so my, my newer mantra with a lot of these projects and books and the way it makes it interesting for me is these typecasting machines that I have here I'm not going to use them unless I make books with them. That's kind of come to realize like they will just sit here and acquire dust unless they do some dorky little thing once in a while. Like the way they get used in a proper way where I wear them out to have to retune them throughout a project, you know, is to make a book with them, which really does like, it doesn't stress them too much, but it stresses them in a way like they used to be stressed. And so part of like just the maintenance of these old hundred year old typecasting machines is they have to be used once a year to make, in my case, to make a book. And so the book has now become like my means of keeping that side of the tradition alive. And I really like so many other aspects of making books, but I think it starts for me now with that, like, let's, let's keep it, let's do this typecasting project that then turns into something else. And in, in the process, I do keep a certain amount of tradition alive that not too many people are doing. I mean, plenty, mm-hmm. but not more than a hundred in the whole world, probably for sure. So it's, it's getting smaller. Yeah. I mean, there is still like a genuine risk that some parts of bookmaking do get lost. I don't know enough really to be able to cite, I don't know, no one has one of these machines anymore that does this and that, that way, but it really does have to get passed down person to person. True. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of books about bookbinding. I suppose you could read, teach yourself on your own, but still you're, there's a practical knowledge and is really important. I mean, also, you know, a lot of these machines I can see in the background right now there, nothing, no newer technology does what they do exactly. There's other ways to print text on a page, but, you know, Mm -hmm. they were purpose-built to make a certain kind of object. Yeah, if you don't use the machines, it'll go away. I mean, you've, I mean, even if you have to replace, I know, Mark, like a part breaks, don't you have to get like remachined sometimes or else salvage it from somewhere? Every, that's the thing. If it wasn't for me, like tackling a book every year, I don't think I'd encounter those necessary problems that would occur for me to reach out to the community to 
look at old manuals to ask other people where I should like seek the information out to repair and then make the machine, you know, more functional again. And so if it wasn't for the, the book project, I feel like there would be, yeah, a lot lost with the operation of these things. Like you have to use them hard to really yeah. understand them. You can't just like, like anyone can turn on my composition caster. I mean, it's fairly simple. There's like a few controls that you could teach someone to turn on, but that's like the smallest aspect of running them. Like what running them means something is going to go wrong and you have to fix them. And so in order to do that, you have to run them a lot. And I don't see any other way to run them a lot unless you're casting type for books because that's where you need type. That's where you need lengths and volumes of information. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get to film it, but I know at one point you just have to sometimes like take your typecaster apart. Oh yeah. Um, you know, like, which sounds, I mean, I've seen it sometimes on the machines like in partial builds and it's, it's intense. That's why I, it's literally why I keep two of every machine around. Like I have, I have two of each very specifically so that when one breaks, yeah. one looks correct. We're going back to when I put it all back. Oh, God, right. <laughs> I mean, Russell Merritt, I think in the film says, there are no manuals. There are manuals, but it's not all the information of actually knowing how to fix Davey it. Davey always had like a good, he liked old manuals. And he noticed that there was a particular era in time when manuals got smarter, or at least like just the visual language of, of a instruction manual change. Because from like 1950 before, the manuals are just a bunch of words <laughs> and mm. it was almost expected that you'd be working in a house or some sort of trade group that you'd, you'd already know the basics and a lot of these things, but the manuals you could refer to. And we're so used to, our brains are so used to visual manuals, like, like manuals that are mm. so specifically visual, especially for mechanical stuff that you read these old things and you're just like, what were they thinking? But like, that's just how, that's how they did it back in the day. And we're so, our brains are so much more visual now for dealing with this type of thing. And so, yeah, the manuals are half the time completely useless. You can't get much from them. Those are some good points. I, I like the idea of, yeah, the book being freed from what it, I don't want to say function, but it kind of, it is a little obsolete. So it does give it a little more freedom with that. That ends up being uh, basically yeah. the thesis of the film. <laughs> you know, if mm -hmm. you had to say anything, you know, it's not being left behind. It's just free. Yeah. yeah. Do you, for, for both of you, do you have a particular favorite part in the film? Oh, uh, well, I like Mark's stuff a lot. Um, <laughs> That's the easy answer, but okay, yeah. Um, no, I do, because it's like actually more sort of story-based. Um, I like that there's a surprise of the internet archive, just because mm -hmm. it's something completely different and a different way of envisaging that books might get transformed and what like archives might be and that i mean they talk about yeah like books get lost i mean the book itself just uh, it does and that like institutions fail and governments fall apart and and all that kind of thing and so you want i mean brewster kale says you want a foundation you want something that's separate from just a university or the universities are good as well anyway i enjoy that because yes it's kind of a breath of just completely different way of looking at books kind of almost doesn't fit but um i think it does <laughs> My, I mean, it's very, very obviously personal for me. Not that I needed to capture the making of Ham on Rye, like that was something important, but more so that we, me and Davey always joked, we just never, we were never able to document, you know, all this, this work and, you know, the struggle throughout the years because we were too busy working and struggling the entire mm -hmm. time. So there's so little visual, you know, record of all those years we spent because we were just didn't, we weren't sitting around taking pictures of each other. And like, it was starting to be the Instagram age and stuff like that. But like, 
we didn't really we just didn't catalog it in a way that you know you would you would hope to to like your golden years of your working and stuff so just the fact that James was able to capture that studio and some of that time that now I'm already like you know far away from it so that I have a record of it for like my kids like that is just so fortunate for that to like exist because like you know how many people get to show like their kids later on like well this is a very like clear and well done representation of what your dad did like 40 years ago it it does occur to me when people are like reticent to be in a documentary and i don't know of course people don't i don't like to be on camera particularly but i'm like no no you should say also yes because someone is you know paying to document your life at this point and you know like yeah it's a cool record i mean the, the big regret i have is that we didn't get to start filming earlier because well david passed away just before we actually the first footage was we did with, with mark before we started it i was like talk to david and mark at like a party and be like if this thing actually happens like i'm gonna feature you guys this is gonna be great and we'll have a lot of fun and then that then david passed away and we you know we went on mark's computer and like scraped up you know like you said like yeah like you found stuff that i couldn't have even you know i'm just like all that all that little all that stuff you threw together for that montage yeah uh, it's probably lost on my phones and all this other stuff so just that it even was saved in that little bit is meaningful you know that's true yeah i mean because this whole thing will get archived we do lto tapes and backup drives and in fact yes i've got all that stuff still on a hard drive here so don't worry it'll end up <laughs> some some kind of storage facility but i mean to go back to what i was saying like david did pass away just before and then even the first stuff i got with mark right after we filmed that before we actually had any of the money in but i was like i think this is happening uh, let's start filming mark you were just starting that huge rafa book um <laughs> which uh, indeed took longer than expected, just as my film took me longer than I expected. I ended up working on it for, I mean, if you count this year where I've been promoting it, you know, like five years, um, which is more, uh, yeah, because the first thing I shot was at the very end of 2015 was Mark. Um, and if you count the airing on footage, which is a little bit in the movie, then it goes back even further, which is crazy. I've done other bits of freelance and things in the meantime, but uh, you know, it's a long time to work on a project. Both annoying and very relieving. I always liked that when I first started it was one of the reasons I first started like working on books and stuff when I was printing and trying to do like trade work and artistic work like with printing and I really liked it once I did made a book because it took so damn long and I was just like well this is relieving I like the idea (laughs) this is really pleasant that it takes such a long amount of time to work on a single project because you know it just lets you get into the work without having to overthink you know what's the what's the next concept over and over again you know so I've always enjoyed that. I like things that take a few years. <laughs> I guess it do. You must end up second guessing yourself a bit though, where you're like, oh, should I have done this page? Oh yeah, no, it's all in. Yeah, it's just, uh, at that point, who cares? You get so tired of it after the like first six months. It's like, it doesn't matter anymore. How big is the edition of Hamlin Rye? Uh, 52 copies. I don't think I'll end up making 52. I think it's mm. probably gonna be more like an edition of 30 in the end. And I they're see. pretty close to getting getting done on that, which is great. I don't particularly want to spend more time on Hamlin, right? It's been a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long was that from start to finish? I mean, I know years, but is that... I, mean, like, I, I started acquiring, trying to figure out the rights in 2014, and it was released in the spring of 2018. So it was like a four-year ordeal. Like in okay. total. Yeah. yeah, I was lucky. I got like a, an old high school friend that did do work in some book publishing in New York, and he's always been my 
yeah, good contact person for, you know, acquiring the rights. And once we started doing that, like having to realize how long sometimes that, that part of the process took, you know, now I know, now I know to start that process, like, well, years before production has to start happening, you know, cause you don't want to be sitting around waiting on that. You got kind of lucky. I remember the thing was that Bukowski doesn't have many surviving Heirs. family members. Yeah. So yeah, it's a small that's a big, estate. big thing. Yeah. Estates are just complicated and the more of them, the more complicated it gets for sure. I mean, God, hmm. even in publishing, like normal trade publishing, orphan books happen all the time because no one can figure out who has the copyright or someone people can't agree to allow another reprinting, you know, another mm-hmm. edition. I mean, that's a bit of, again, Internet Archives, why they're concerned because, yeah, the orphan books is the problem. which just can't get republished. Yeah. And I remember at one point also you, because you took long and you expected you were almost going to lose the rights. Yeah, I had to get an amendment done. And yeah, it was a, it was a big pain in the butt. To redo contracts are no fun, but you know, if you want to do something after 1929, it's like a reality of, of the process, you know. Yeah, right. That's the fun part, but right. everyone does so many copies of like public domain books. Oh yeah. No, it's yeah. so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's really fascinating. I, I mean, I don't do that type of work. How much detail do you need to tell them about the project? Did you just I mean, unfortunately it's it's so unusual and small. Mm-hmm. That, that ends up being kind of one of the, the problems is trying to explain, you know, what you're doing, you know, and how, yeah, how minimally you are going to make money in this process. How small of like a deal. Trying to do also, what? Yeah, like, and also they're all like, okay, so two years, right? Like, and often like these contracts are just like, we've never given rights past two years. And it's like, oh, well... I'm moving at such a snail's pace. You can't even comprehend how slow <laughs> So I need more than that. And often it's not the case. So it's like, it's just a very meticulous planning on like, what's the most I can timeline I can get out of them. And then how quickly can I plan everything and get it, get it arranged. It's just not, it's so uncommon in those copyright situations that it's constantly explaining yourself and begging for amendments <laughs> to, to make it work. But, you know, often it seems to be okay. I've, I've run into roadblocks, but it's generally because of, yeah, complicated estate situations or just people that just don't have any energy to reply to emails and things like that because they don't need to. Um, And then sometimes it just goes very smoothly and you're like, I I wish it could happen all the time. But yeah, so many of the fine presses are producing works that are older because of that reason. But as someone kind of in a younger generation that seems uh, drab, you know, I should be doing something at least in old stuff but you know 50s 60s 70s maybe mm-hmm. that i can handle that modern classics at least mm-hmm. or just something weird and that you love i don't know and how, what do people say how long does it take for like you know a work of literature to really get into the canon it takes yeah. a few decades you know but not a hundred years <laughs> right i want to go back to the your studio how was how was moving that all oh, that, that was, equipment that was the first month of my life for sure and I got real lucky because I had been tentatively planning on bailing out of the Bay Area for, for a year or two. So I had done the research and I kind of had my ducks in a row. But in January, you know, we did find a place out here that we ended up buying and we had an idea of where we were putting this stuff. And then I arranged all the moving. But it was this, like, and this is this is Maryland, you should say. <laughs> yeah, it was 3,300 miles away. And, you know, I had everything <laughs> packed away, but I had to I had to pack all these things and in, in like little pod competitor containers and it was mm-hmm. sick of them. It's a very like long ordeal of putting sometimes just one machine in one of these pods and strapping it down and sending it on its way and then filling a house up with one of them. But it was like 48,000 pounds worth of stuff 
that oh I God. Fire way across the country, and I was able to save. I was able to send everything. I just decided it was it was going to be harder for me to come out here and go source this stuff than it was if I just figured out how to move it. And the only thing that didn't make it was a was my big power paper cutter ended up flipping in Oakland out of all places. Like it left the warehouse and flipped on its head and broke in half. And I had to like pay someone to drag it out of the pod and you know they took it away. And then I just like said screw it and packed everything else in and kept going the way. But it showed up and I had some family here to unload it. And yeah, it was it, it was a miracle and it was the most horrible 30 days you could imagine. I'm so happy that when it was over. You should probably say like why you moved as well, because you know you had. Yeah, I had the. I mean, I had the studio, and we had we were in Oakland. We were actually, you know, and both me and my wife had jobs in in Oakland. Everything was everything was fine, but my family was based here in outside of DC, and we had just had our first kid, and I don't know, something. You know, I I needed to get the equipment somewhere safe. I didn't want to do this the rat race as much anymore, and. Yeah, so we had this long plan, but executing it did take two years. Like, you know, it's like that was the idea. And then two years later, it happened. Like, it was it was very tough. You know, now we have a little bit of like space and a little bit of land to kind of like breathe and, and do this stuff and do projects, you know, not just printing projects, but just much more fun life projects that you couldn't do in California, you know. Mm-hmm. When I moved to Texas from the Bay Area, of course, mm-hmm. but I didn't have a whole lot to move. I have like a little Pogo proof press and uh-huh. um, the heaviest piece was my guillotine. And it's so stupid. I'm still I'm still mad about it because I love this stupid guillotine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like a, it was a thousand pounds or something. But same thing. We moved it all the way here. And then I almost immediately moved out again. Um, when I oh. slid up with my ex. So I was here for, I think like three months and then had to move that stupid thing again and then sell it <laughs> because I couldn't move it into my, my smaller place. So it was seriously, I, I just moved this piece of equipment 1700 miles just so I could sell it here for less money than I would get it in California. Oh, no. uh-huh. so. <laughs> That's my, I don't know, nightmare story. Plus I, I almost crushed my coworker to death when we were trying to it wasn't smart. We moved it on pipes. Like none of it is, none like of it is smart. <laughs> if it gets done, it's lucky, you know. Like it yeah. all, it all got done. I had to beg. Ever, I had to beg so many people for for help on either end of the of the whole country just to make sure that it would get in place. You know, I've done it before. The whole there's a very good idea though. This was it. I didn't want. We we did move it several times in the Bay Area, and I didn't want to do it ever again. This is final. It'll mm-hmm. it'll be buried here on, on tranquility. <laughs> actually could i take a screen cap of your studio oh yeah i can oh, move amazing. the i can shift the uh camera around too yeah there's the old awesome. gats mural that made it here oh yeah the mural um seen in the film you taking it apart at one point we had to open up your studio yeah yeah it saved me like paper bucks in the plywood so i didn't have to insulate this place i just used the mural <laughs> oh you moved the mural from there oh yeah yeah i couldn't let that go <laughs> There's the the wall of tools that's necessary to keep this place alive. Um, and then I'll give you the typecasters. Oh, yeah. This is the visual part of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> There's the line of typecasters and so one behind cool. me, too. Yeah, I don't miss, uh, you know, Steel is nostalgic watching the movie, yeah. but I don't miss it one bit. I don't miss everyone else's sounds of welding and music. Oh, God, yeah. I get to listen yeah. to my own music now, which is really pleasant. And just the general sort of grime and rain of dust and stuff, <laughs> like constructing around you. Raining inside, you know. Oh my gosh. How many people shared that space? I think there is, I mean, there is a hundred people in, in steel. Oh. You know? 
yeah it oh, was okay. six acres was what i think the the building was oh my yeah. gosh yeah, it's I massive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why I remember with, on occasions we were able to like barbecue inside. Yeah, <laughs> didn't matter. Well, you can do anything you want there for a few years. It was great. <laughs> yeah, I remember riding the crane. Um, <laughs> like that was that was a fun thing to do because no one was paying attention. So, what new projects are you both working on? I did a book in between Ham and before I moved. I I did this book about surfing. This old surfing book from I think it was like 1931 that was like kind of the first technical manual on on surfing and wave riding in general so did that with a local photographer in San Francisco and that was that was pretty fun and that was done thankfully right before we moved so I didn't have to really do too much and pack everything up and then since I've been out here I started a project I've had on the burner for a few years doing this book called Consider the Oyster by MFK Fisher who was a really popular food writer in the 40s and 50s She's barrier as well. At least spent a lot of time there, and so it's just a it's a love letter to oysters. It's like seventy pages long, and uh, I got this artist that I've known about for a while up in New York, just a printmaker that was very well known, Martin Mazora, and he's doing a number of woodcuts for me to to get in there. But he's also an oyster lover, so everyone involved has to be slightly obsessed with oysters. I think that's <laughs> a general rule. And hopefully we have a big old party next year, hopefully, and have a big old oyster party next fall or something. <laughs> if it's all done, we'll see. That's very cool. What I do like about your work is how the attention to detail, but details that people might not even notice, so like the alum tiled pigskin mm-hmm. in ham or something like that, where <laughs> I, I think you would have to know what that is to appreciate that. It, it's a nice touch. And I think when I first met you, you were working on that book with the eels and then you yeah. insisted on like catching your own eels <laughs> That was oh, yeah. out of the eel skins. <laughs> Bound yeah. in eel skin. I'm so sad I didn't get to film that. That was like the coolest uh, thing. You would have filmed it much better than I did. Yeah, it would have been that would have been um, great. It wasn't like a seaweed paper. Yeah, like, we did say we made like seaweed paper with the help of a paper maker. We made some I like collected, I think it was like 30 or 40 pounds of seaweed on the coast, and we ended up kind of blending that in with some green cotton and making seaweed paper. That's always fun. I mean, that's always a shtick I'll keep with. Like for the oyster book, I'm getting my paper makers up in Montreal. They're making me some sort of paper that's supposed to be textured and look kind of like an oyster shell. Try and make some sort of of clamshell box, (laughs) clamshell, (laughs) with like some magnets in there so that you actually have to use an oyster knife to like pop the box open to like get to the book. That's the goal. We haven't even prototyped that yet, but I'm sure it's, I'm sure it'll work, figure it out eventually. But you know, people generally seem to like it, so I can I can keep with that. It makes things a little little light. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's Very the whole cool. thing. It's the whole sensory experience. I mean, I do remember the eel book did kind of smell of the ocean. Oh yeah. <laughs> people say like, oh, the smell of a book is very nostalgic. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this one get you there. What about yeah, you, okay. Well, so yeah, since I finished the film, or really well, when I, since I finished it, and then I um, still feel very involved in it because of promotion and all that, but I, mm-hmm. I moved down to Los Angeles with my partner, which was not quite as hard of a move, even though I did have to bring all my film kit. So um, it's figuring things out. I've got some ideas for like documentary projects I'd like to do. There's one I often have talked about, about Italo disco, Italian disco, and the weird world of it which I'd love to spend more time on. Right now I'm, I'm doing some editing on a, a doc series based in the Bay about the future of cities and how to fix cities. It's kind of the history of them, which is fun. But um, if anything, I'd like to do a bit more narrative stuff. I've been working for like cheap or free a bit while I've been down here, just trying to get a foot in the door on some horror shorts that have been gotten involved with and that kind of thing. 
um because oh. i i love documentary films and it's they're the best because you actually get to you know go out in the world and meet people and like learn about whole things you don't know but you know i also like fictional movies a ton as well so that would be fun to get to work on i mean obviously not a lot happening this year really but we've made some good friends since we've been down here and we've actually and got a couple scripts we want to shoot so hopefully in the next year there'll come a point where we can we can do that it's a good sci-fi short We've got some friends we all want to work on. We'll see. It's all up in the air, really, at the moment. Still having to, like, think about where the next paycheck comes from and another foot still happy to be promoting the bookmakers. And that's well, streaming now on PBS. Yes. So, um, well, it's had a lot of the, in terms of actual TV stations, a lot of the big markets have actually, you know, had their first run. Sometimes they, they then, you know, they get good numbers. They will, like, schedule it again. But that's going through January, but it'll be on their website and on their app that you can get for like the iPhone or the phones or um, Apple TV or Roku, whatever. It's a good streaming service. So I think that goes at least through April. I think it's still on there and it's easy and it's free. That was actually one of the fun things. I didn't expect this to end up on PBS or PBS stations. Previously, we'd, you know, taken to film festivals and try and find a distributor. But as we cut it down, it ended up basically being just a perfect PBS hour. And we had some contacts from our production company's history, which used to mainly focus on TV. And it was kind of cool. I mean, sorry to the funders that that means you don't make any money, but it's <laughs> good in an like artistic sense to felt in the spirit of the film that, yeah, it just gave it out to the world and it's free for them. And in terms of international, people keep asking about that. We're still working on deals. That takes some time, so I can't make any promises. So apologies to anyone listening abroad. If you inquire with me directly, sometimes I will maybe pass on a screener link if you ask very nicely. Or we've also made a, there's actually a DVD and Blu-ray available. It's an international version available on the website. Anyone listening can't stream it right now. It's just a simple play only, no special features, but at least I can get it out to people. And the website for that? Oh, uh, just um, thebookmakersfilm.com. And where can people find out more about you, Mark? Theprototypepress.com. All right. Well, it was really nice talking to you guys. Um, yeah. I'm so excited to see your studio, Mark. Yeah, yeah, man. One, one day it'll be open, open for visits, you know, we'll figure it out. Welcome back. More information about James Kennard and The Bookmakers Film can be found at thebookmakersfilm.com and is available to stream on PBS. Mark Sargianis is at theprototypepress.com. As always, I'm at coyotebonespress.com or on Instagram at coyotebonespress. More information about this podcast and show notes are found at booksinthewild.com. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time.